DocuPod, the stories behind documentaries. What can you guys, what can you say about how you guys battled, especially with the pressure they were bringing up front in the third quarter to really break through with the runs you had? I'm thankful. Talk about your performance in the second half of the big run. I'm thankful. Welcome back to DocuPod. I am Tiffany, and I am joined by the New York Times bestselling author and writer, producer, and director of my latest favorite documentary called Lynch, A History. David Shields is here. How are you doing? Just fine. Thank you so much, Tiffany. It's an honor to be on the podcast. Thank you so much for joining me and for making this film. I cannot wait to talk about it, and I'm so excited to talk about how it's coming to Oakland on August 7th at the New Parkway. We'll get into that at the end of the show, but we have to start with the origin of this documentary and also just kind of your pivot from writing into making documentaries. What was that like and how did you get involved with this story? Sure. There's a few questions there, Tiffany, and a lot to explain. I'll try not to bore your listeners, but part of it is, you know, I've made a lot of transitions as a writer and as someone who tries to be creative. I mean, I wrote three novels in my 20s and 30s, and then in my 30s and 40s, I pivoted into doing more nonfiction books and what I call literary collage. And then after a while, I pivoted into doing a lot of collaboration, co-editing anthologies and co-editing an oral biography about J.D. Salinger. And then I worked on a film with James Franco, who directed a film based on a book of mine. And then the Salinger oral biography was paired with a documentary film of the same name. And so it didn't come out of nowhere. One, my transition from fiction to nonfiction as a writer. Second of all, I've been obsessed and have taught documentary film for 30 years. You know, no work of art has influenced me more probably than Ross McElwee's great film, Sherman's March. As I've told Ross many times, you know, that film totally changed my writing life. And then I wrote a book called Reality Hunger, a manifesto. It came out in 2010. It sort of argues how you know, a lot of the most exciting gestures in contemporary art blur distinctions between fiction and nonfiction and overturn sort of 19th century notions of what constitutes copyright. So you can see how all this is sort of preparing me for a transition into making my own documentary film. And then for a while, I tried to work with my former student, James Franco, on trying to adapt a book of mine called Black Planet Facing Race during an NBA season, which came out 20 years ago, and that we shot various versions of it, but it just seemed a little dated or it wasn't exactly working. So at that point, this is around 2013, I realized a lot of what I wanted to explore, namely the nexus of race, sports, media, and American history, I could explore in a much more timely and powerful way through the figure of Marshawn Lynch. So I think the origin of the film was sort of the end of Black Planet as a film, and also me just being riveted and enraptured by Marshawn Lynch's non-interview interview performance during Media Week during Super Bowl 48, where he was interviewed by Deion Sanders from the NFL Network. And he just sort of gave this very Oakland, very, you know, kind of gangsta response where he was pretending to be polite, but he couldn't have more totally deconstructed and demolished the interview format. And, you know, I 
live in Seattle. I was a Marshawn Lynch fan of him as a player and as kind of insubordinate toward American media norms and standards. But I had never been so ensorcelled by him as I was when he gave this sort of viral performance. And so at that point was kind of born, you know, a whole variety of factors of me nibbling at film, of me being a Marshawn Lynch fan, the Black Planet film attempt coming to an end, and then me being enraptured by Lynch and Lynch's performance. And so I determined to make a film about him. You know, I approached Marshawn through his his representatives, and they basically said, you know, that we won't in any way impede or block your film, Hmm. you know, but we won't participate either, which was perfect. You know, as I've said, slightly tongue-in-cheek, I would have been bitterly disappointed if Marshawn had participated in the movie because his whole dance is one of sort of beautifully eloquent silence. Hmm. But we have heard that Marshawn Lynch's mom will be attending, or so we believe, the Oakland screening, so that we're very excited about that, that Delisa Lynch has said that she would like to attend the screening. But in any case, in the category of necessity as the mother of invention, that basically by the fact of Marshawn not participating in the film, he forced me and my film associates, including most importantly, the film editor, James Nugent, he and I had to go through, you know, hundreds, thousands of clips on the web and through consultation with my lawyer, you know, the intellectual property expert, Robert Clarida, that we were able to determine what falls within fair use, you know, basically using over 700 clips in a very narrow range and thereby construct a film that's both a biopic, you know, it takes him from age around 14 to now a man of 33, to also constructing not just a biopic or a sports pick, but really a meditation on American history, American racial history, and especially on how Marshawn Lynch uses silence as an undeniable form of cultural protest. So that's kind of the origin story of the film, and that's sort of the core is how I'm I'm here talking with you now four years later. It's so fascinating. As a person who's been involved in media and does talk to people, there's so many interviews out there where people are asking the same questions. Like, this is already out there. So for you to take the time to go through thousands upon thousands of clips and really say, okay, I can tell a story with what has already been said, as well as mixing in, you know, just the status quo of what was happening at the time, mixing in different feelings, even the fact that you mixed in his favorite book, The Cat in the Hat. Yeah. All the different layers of it is so incredible. And just taking the time to really play with the form, in a sense, in a way that we've never seen, especially now, because as I'm watching it, I'm thinking about how we are in this meme culture. And this documentary really feeds into meme culture to where we're kind of playing with media and we're playing with clips, but to play with it and really create a beautiful work that involves 700 clips and is 84 minutes long is such a labor of love. What was that process like, especially too, because you were saying your books were a literary collage and to now make a collage in film? Well, thanks so much, Tiffany. Everything that you said is spot on and very generous. I think, 
the film is related undeniably to meme culture and all of that stuff. I'm trying to think of where to even begin. But one thing, I mean, I think exactly right, that I wanted to make a film that felt like it had the compression, concision, and velocity of contemporary culture, but in no way was a kind of glorified vine or something like that, where it's just some kind of supercut of a bunch of things. Because if anybody knows anything about Marshawn Lynch, you know, if someone's a fan of his, say from Seattle or Oakland or anywhere, not all of these clips, but some of them are relatively well known. So the challenge wasn't just to say, okay, I'm going to take a bunch of clips and gather them in this rather obligatory way, but rather to do, you know, the way I always say it in relationship to collage is sort of um, collage is not a refuge for the compositionally disabled. That is to say, filmic collage or, you know, cine essay or film montage, however you want to call it, you know, video remix or whatever term that, you know, it's actually harder to do. It's Mm -hmm. not easier. It's harder to do than a usual narrative film because a narrative film has these relatively tight markers, you know, with somewhat predictable plot turns. So how could we give this film a momentum and yet try not to make it a conventional biopic, a conventional sports pick, because Marchand is, you know, an impressively unusual and idiosyncratic person. And the last thing that we wanted to make was some Ken Burns documentary about with, you know, really great production. And frankly, that we didn't have the, the budget to make a Ken Burns documentary. But to me, that we wanted it in the way that we kept telling ourselves, an early participant in the film, this guy, Michael Logan, said, try never to make it feel like you're watching television. And we constantly have that up in our little film room that, you know, don't ever make it feel like you're just watching ESPN or a game that, you know, it's all these incredibly rapid cuts, you know. So if we, if it's 84 minutes and it's over 700 cuts, I can't quite do the math right now instantaneously. I, I probably should, but, you know, I think the cuts average I'm going to try. Let's see, we've got 700 cuts and it's 84 minutes. So, yeah, I think it averages about 10 seconds per cut, which is probably exactly right, because according to fair use, of course, I don't think that math is right. I realize. But anyway, the point (laughs) being that according to fair use, of course, according to my fair use attorney, he explained that, you know, you really have to have a maximum of 15 seconds per per cut. And so anything more than that, and, you know, basically the whole idea of fair use is that you take as brief of a cut as possible. You make clear that you're making a commentary on the material, and then you try to make sure that commentary is legible to a so-called average viewer. And so that's part of the reason that, you know, there's all these quotes from everyone from Herman Melville to Stokely Carmichael. There's all this material about Trump and American history. So that the film, to me, feels like a fairly overt commentary. And then the other big model we had, other than not doing a work that felt like television, was that we wanted it to feel very directly like a Marshawn Lynch run, so that it had starts and stops and stutter steps and reversals and violence and velocity and speed and slowness, you know, the way that like a Beastquake run, the famous run that Marshawn Lynch made against New Orleans in the playoffs in I think 2011, I believe, or Beastquake 2.0 against the Arizona Cardinals, I think in 2013, that, you know, it's just this amazing, 
miracle of human gymnastics and that we wanted the film to feel as unpredictable, as surprising, as mind-blowing as a Marshawn Lynch run. So those were our big models. And of course, finally, we had a relatively limited budget. I essentially financed the film myself, probably cost $100,000 in broad terms over four years. And, you know, if I would sell a book to a foreign country or I'd sell a book in paperback or I'd get a fellowship somewhere, you know, I just poured the money into the movie and we got, you know, a little bit of money from our consulting producer, John W. Comerford, but, you know, 95% of the money was from me, you know, just sort of financing it. You know, I've been working in literary collage for many, many years, going back to my book, Remote Reflections on Life in the Shadow of Celebrity in 1996 and coming up all the way through, you know, a recent book of mine, like from last year called Nobody Hates Trump More Than Trump and Intervention. So I've been thinking about collage for almost 25 years. And then my film editor, James Nugent, who's just this great guy, great film editor, he's my former student, and he and I have been thinking and talking about collage for at least a dozen years. And so, in a way, this is our attempt to finally take all of our theory and apply it directly and collaboratively toward a film project. He has a strong background in music. He's worked as a film editor. He's worked as a writer, a, a poet. It was just a really happy collaboration between him and me. So those are a few of the things that made the film. And, you know, it just took, can't even compute the number of man hours it took. But, you know, we had various editors on it before James. He carried the biggest load of being the actual person executing the cuts I wanted to have made. I love that the film itself is so surprising, but hearing how intentional it was just completely blows me away. Like all the different intentions that were included in this are just so wonderful. And even just hearing about the technical things about, you know, the fair use laws and working with a lawyer and trying to figure out a way to make it work without having Marshawn's involved, like just the creativity is so inspiring. And you kind of mentioned the funding and how it was self-funded. What was that decision like? And now, you know, there are different partners that you've acquired since making the film. Can you talk a little bit about all of that? Yeah, I mean, this is my first film. I mean, I've been involved in things that had film to it. You know, I've had books of mine be optioned. And then Franco made that one adaptation, this indie film called I Think You're Totally Wrong, A Quarrel, which came out in 2017, I think. And I actually play myself in that film. It's really a three-character film. It's me and my fellow author, Caleb Powell, and Franco has a role in it too, as well as being director. And then, you know, the Salinger book was also a film. And then, you know, this was my first film. And I mean, I'm just a middle-class person. I'm a writer. I have a full-time job as a professor of English at the University of Washington, Seattle. I also teach elsewhere at Warren Wilson College in North Carolina, the Breadloaf Writers Conference in Vermont, and Vermont College for Fine Arts also in Vermont. So I sort of teach around the country, and I do a lot of teaching and lecturing. And so between my book and my teaching and my lecturing, you know, at this point, I've paid off my house. Our daughter has graduated from college, you know, and so I've got a little bit of money to play with. And, you know, it's sort of like what used to be spent on, say, Natalie's college tuition or on the house mortgage. You know, I kind of just have a little bit of money to play with. If someone told me, David, over the next four years, 
you're going to spend $100,000, I would have, you know, jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge. I was like, no way. But, you know, like in for a penny, in for a pound, as they say. And so at first it was just like, okay, here's the first film editor. He goes, you know, I can't work for free. You know, can you pay me whatever, $1,000 this year? And like, okay, sure, here's $1,000. You know, and like, you know, step by step by step, I just got drawn in toward this thing. And I just knew we had a great you know, many times I thought the film would end, whether because I don't know what, from Marshawn's camp or maybe a legal concern or an artistic concern that the film wasn't working or above all, maybe a financial thing. You know, and my wife was awfully good about saying, just go for it. Don't worry about the money. And, you know, there was no promise of if we make our money back that we'll see. I mean, I'd be thrilled if we just make our money back. But, you know, I'm as proud of this as anything I've ever done as a writer. You know, I've written over 20 books at this point, And, you know, I would put this film up with any of those books, you know, and then toward the end, we brought in this guy, John Comerford, who's kind of, uh, he's done some jazz music production and stuff. And he's based in LA and Seattle and also the Bay Area. Anyway, he kind of came on as kind of like our business manager. He contributed a few thousand dollars to it, but really of the hundred thousand dollars, probably 95,000 of it is my own money. It was just month by month, week by week. You know, at some point in the process, Danny Glover came aboard. The actor, I'm sure everyone knows who Danny Glover is, very well-known actor in some iconic American films, but he's also a social activist who recently testified before Congress about slavery reparations. And he's also been a political activist for many years and also has become quite an influential and effective documentary film producer. You know, some of the more interesting films of the last 10 or 15 years have had Danny Glover behind them, especially on the documentary side. So Danny Glover and I know each other through a film we're trying to make about Louis Armstrong being sent during the Cold War by the U.S. State Department to Africa as a Cold War cultural ambassador, that we think that's such a rich moment of American history. So for years, Danny Glover and I have been trying to get this feature film made about that, and that we finally have a script that we are trying to move forward. So when I had a rough cut of the film, you know, we asked Danny Glover if he'd like to come on as executive producer and Danny came to the Seattle Film World premiere and, you know, he gave us a quote for the film and he's been really great about helping the film move forward. So feel free to ask me any other questions about financing. It's not that complicated a story. I just basically bled money for four years, essentially. No, but even that is inspiring because the way you described it really was you taking care of business, making sure that your daughter was good, your house was paid for. And then it was like, okay, now the fact that I've worked hard and made sure everything was taken care of, now I have a little bit of money where I can really pour it into a passion project. And I think that's super inspiring, too, to people who are listening to be like, oh, OK, well, I just have to take care of my business and then I can do those passion projects. I think that's super inspiring for the listeners. So thank you for sharing that. That's certainly a term, you know, we've heard before. Somehow it's a 
term in the film business, but I think when people say passion project, they often think of like, okay, I'll do a bunch of commercial movies and then I'll have this passion project and the passion project never happens. But to me, it's this whole thing where you keep on waiting for someone else to give you the green light. It'll never happen. And, you know, this was just something I just knew we had a great film here and it was an amazing process. Like it feels great now to have the film out there and, you know, be playing in LA and Oakland. It got this wonderful review in The New Yorker and at The Nation magazine and it's going to be in so-called limited theatrical release. It'll be playing in a range of cities from LA to Oakland to Iowa City to, you know, Chicago, Boston, Indianapolis, Minneapolis, you know, a whole bunch of cities, New York City, New Orleans. You know, it'll be dropping on iTunes, a whole series of other platforms after that. So it just feels amazing, this film that we thought was going to come to an inglorious end, you know, a dozen times. We just kept on pushing forward, you know, and it does feel really gratifying, you know, to make the movie that we wanted to make, a film that we think contributes to the larger public conversation about Black Lives Matters, about players kneeling, about resistance to Trump, about all kinds of things. You know, it's not just, oh, gee, here's our passion project, and it's a zombie movie to entertain people. It's really meant to be a quite serious intervention into American conversation about sports, media, race, history, etc. Definitely. And that's a perfect segue, too, because I wanted to talk about the title, Lynch a History, which is so simple, but in the positive connotation of the word, because it's so effective and so powerful. And I think it really ties into what you were just mentioning about the fact that by naming it a history and not the history or you know it's very open-ended because it does involve so many different things from the history of the Black Panthers to resistance to Trump to the status quo like you said sports media history Black Lives Matter all these things that Marshawn Lynch embodies when he speaks and even when he doesn't speak so when did the title click for you? I know what you mean I feel like you know I've have various strengths and weaknesses as a writer. And I have to admit that one of my strengths is I think I'm a pretty good titler. I really like my titles. <laughs> Plenty of other things about my books I may not be happy with, but I somehow I'm a, a good titler. I think that both of my parents were journalists and publicists, and maybe I have a little bit of their ability to maybe title stuff. But um, I forgot how that clicked in. It was relatively late. You know, at one point we had all these crazy titles. You know, part of it is just his name growing up was Marshawn Sapp. You know, that was his father's name, spelled S-A-P-P. And Marshawn is, I forget his exact relationship to the football player, Warren Sapp, but I think they're cousins. I think they're fairly closely related. But anyway, the Marshawn's father essentially abandoned him. And so the Marshawn took his mother's name, Delisa Lynch. His name is obviously a very loaded and resonant and traumatizing term, or should be for everyone in America, and obviously specifically for Black people. And in a way, watching the movie, you're sort of waiting for when is the Lynch term going to finally explode. And it's there from the very beginning with the first 
30 seconds were showing incidents of driving while black and cops, you know, various dash cam footage of white cops assaulting black motorists. So from the very beginning, it should indicate that the movie is not going to be your father's sports documentary. You know, from the very beginning, it shows you that it's going to be on the one hand, Marshawn Lynch. In a way, it is sort of a history. You know, it does take him from his teenage years to a man on the verge of retirement from his football career. But on the other hand, of course, from the very title, you kind of think, well, Lynch, is it a history of American lynching? No, not exactly. But it's not not a, a history of American lynching. And so I do like the way that the title functions in a few ways. You know, on the one hand, it's history of Marshawn, but it's trying to suggest exactly what you say is that, you know, if you're going to tell a true history of Marshawn Lynch, you really have to understand how much he comes from Oakland. You know, that's such a cliche about him. But I think one of the parts of the film I'm perhaps happiest with is just it really shows how saturated and marinated he is in various forms of Oakland style protests from the Black Panthers to the Oakland Raiders to the Hells Angels to basically troublemakers, you know, various kinds of cultural game-changing people from Angela Davis to Stokely Carmichael to Gertrude Stein to even Clint Eastwood, people who have figured out a way to be somewhat resistant to cultural discourse, I would say. And then how much his silence got, I think, deepened and I would say kind of darkened and saddened in Buffalo. And then the way that silence sort of went viral in Seattle, and then it got sort of politicized or more politicized upon his return to Oakland, and then the way in which that silence has been passed on as legacy to a younger generation of black athletes. I know that title sits nicely as the film, and I mean, the only problem sometimes is you want to make sure people don't come in expecting that the film is, say, a history of American lynching so that people are expecting, say, a two-hour documentary that's going to be that, you know, and I think if you read a few words on the movie that, and you know, and also I want to make sure that there are more awful things that have happened than things that have happened to Marshawn Lynch. And, you know, they're not comparing the media's cavalier treatment of Marshawn Lynch to a lynching. I mean, obviously, there's that wonderful phrase from the New Yorker review from Hua Hasu, who said, this film is a gradient of American carnage that basically the film tracks ranges of American violence from subtle media violence all the way up to actual lynching. And so in a way that captures the movie perfectly. And I think the title doesn't do a bad job of being a sort of holding tank for all those kinds of American carnage. Definitely. Goodness. Oh, man. And then I wanted to ask you, what did it teach you about yourself personally or professionally? That's a great question, Tiffany. I mean, I'm trying to think of where, you know, some people would say, oh, well, it's just a work of art. And, you know, I'm separate from that. But I feel like professionally is probably the easier one, you know, in the sense that, you know, it is fascinating how I've just been obsessed with documentary film for at least three decades. I've been, you know, watching them with friends and teaching them and studying them, but not just standard documentary film, you know, sort of oddball documentary film, whether Errol Morris or Werner Herzog or Ross McElwee or Frederick Weissman, all kinds of just amazing documentary film has been a huge compliment or corollary to my writing life and um, inspiration for it. So for me, part of it is like, wow, I really 
in a way, I've been stoking this fire for 30 years, and now I'm finally ready to make a film. And obviously, it's not a regular film, but it's a film, you know, and it's out there. So part of what it taught me is, God, the collage method can definitely apply, you know, in many ways applies more naturally to film, which is obviously an art of juxtaposition. And, you know, I'm definitely working on a new book, but I'm also I'm working on at least one other really a few other documentary movies now. So part of me is in late middle age, you know, I'm like, I've really found at least my third or fourth or fifth wind here with documentary film. And also just, I think part of me is like, wow, if you really wanted to commit to it, like no one's going to get it done for you. And just that whole cliche of independent filmmaking and doc filmmaking is that, you know, I kept on waiting for an angel to come in and solve it for me, whether a financial angel or an editing angel or I don't know what, but it's like no one really cares if you make the movie or not. You got to be your own angel. There you go. <laughs> That's the title. And then, you know, like no one really cares. Like if we give up on it, the world will still spin. And if we make it, you know, w will it change the world? Well, we hope in small ways, but the world will also still spin. And so that we were just part of it. it's one of the great things of collaboration is that the other people keep you going. Like everybody loses faith at some point. And, you know, I can't tell you the number of times I just said, okay, listen, I'm out of money. This is a losing cause. It's legally, financially, artistically untenable. We've just kept on going and getting our 20th wind on it. So I guess part of what taught me professionally is, you know, how excited I am by becoming a documentary filmmaker at this point in my life. And then also how much nobody will save you. You know, you got to save yourself. And then on a personal level, you know, I'm a white filmmaker. I'm a white person. I was born and raised in the Bay Area by very politically active journalists. My mom and dad were hugely involved in civil rights and anti-war and desegregation. And I never have made, I mean, I've made works that have a political element, but nothing has had as overt a cultural and political commentary as this film. And, you know, I have this gear within myself. And I mean, I don't know, I, I'm not the person to judge the film. But, you know, so far, it's gotten a lot of good reaction. And I feel like the attempt is my attempt to understand as a white person, how it feels to be a black man in America. And I'm not embarrassed by the attempt. I think it's a good attempt. Again, in no way does the movie speak for Marshawn Lynch or pretend to understand him exactly, but it's an attempt to evoke from, admittedly, the limited perspective of a white middle-class male. But I think, you know, I've gotten such positive responses, you know, especially from that one night that you were there and saw it in Seattle, Tiffany, you know, just so many black writers and intellectuals and musicians came up to me and just said, you know, thank you for making this film. It's like, you know, it was just unbelievably gratifying to make a film that, you know, would have some value in 
the culture is just very meaningful to me. All of that is so, so powerful. Goodness. Just in terms of you having that internally in you from your parents and from just being a writer and all those things internally within you, but also outwardly saying, okay, I am a white person, but this is what I want to not only teach myself about, but teach other people about. And you also mentioned, you know, you make things and you put them out to the world and you hope that they're life changing, but you never really know. And I can tell you straight up, this film was life changing for me from an aspect of the actual medium and using documentary to be a collage I had never seen that before and that just opened up my mind to so many different things that it was so overpowering to be like oh my goodness this can exist and it's so beautiful but also to just resonating with it because I am from Oakland and because I love Marshawn as a person and as an activist but also really being able to say okay what can I learn from this and what can other people learn from this so thank you again so much for making this film I absolutely thank you so much (laughs) Tiffany that is really beautiful that both as a work of film that it's definitely an unusual video collage wow the film medium can encompass this and then second of all as a kind of love song to Marshawn the film had some resonance for you so that's obviously incredibly meaningful to me so thank you for saying that and you know I'm doing this conversation with Harry Edwards who's you know very very well known and influential figure who wrote this book called The Revolt of the Black Athlete which I remember resonating with me hugely when I was you know a high school athlete in California in the 1970s and you know that he's this very influential person who's taught at San Jose State and at Berkeley and he you know was in in many ways a very influential figure behind Tommy Smith and John Carlos protesting at the the Mexico City 1968 Olympics and he was somewhat influential behind I think Colin Kaepernick and Colin Kaepernick's stance of kneeling. Anyway, Harry Edwards and I are going to be talking about the film on August 7th at 7 p.m. at the New Parkway. And it's just such an amazing journey for me that now, my goodness, almost 50 years after Harry Edwards published that book, I think it came out around 70 or 71. And he was a book that, you know, I really much as kind of like a high school athlete slash journalist slash activist, you know, I was hugely influenced by the book. And then now here I am, you know, in 2019, Harry Edwards and I will be talking about the movie. I hope that Harry likes the movie. I guess I'll find out, you know, but, um, you know, I've been in touch with him and I would hope and assume that Dr. Edwards will, you know, but he'll engage with me. He's a very challenging guy. And also at that same event will be Michael Smith from ESPN, who used to host the show, he said, she said, with Jamel Hill on ESPN. And so anyway, Michael Smith and Harry Edwards and I will be there. And the most crucial figure, of course, is that we're expecting Delisa Lynch to be in the audience. So, my God, it just feels like such a squaring of the circle of my life. And I was born and raised in the Bay Area. And so here I am in Oakland. And obviously, it feels really good. No, it's definitely full circle. And that's so cool. Yes, we got to invite everybody out August 7th, the new Parkway in Oakland at 7pm. Honestly, you heard who's going to be there. It's going to be such an incredible event. So I would encourage people to get their tickets as soon as possible. Once again, August 7th at the new Parkway in Oakland. All the information is going to be at lynch dash 
a-history.com and all that information of course is going to be in the show description anything else you want to tell the people david nothing other than thanks again tiffany it's been great chatting with you and i remember your you know ebullient face after the screening that you came up to me and you gave me your card and you're just so excited about the movie and you said let's do the podcast and you know it was just so cool that just human connections you know are just so rare and just that you just happened to go to the film and that you liked it and now here we are talking and you know the whole film is just about making these tiny connections that Marshawn I think you know just to connect it back to the film that I think that Marshawn he does deploy silence as this powerful form of resistance because the kind of conversations he's being asked to have in the locker room are so ridiculous that, you know, he wants to have a meaningful conversation, you know, not that he's dying to talk about all this, but that basically the whole discourse of what I call the American media sports complex is so degraded and so driven by cliches and by a kind of I don't know what kind of corporate business, white dominant cultures rhetoric that he wants to have a real connection to people that's, you know, funny or musical or lyrical. And, you know, the film often shows how Marshawn is really in many ways a very joyous and very funny person who just is not going to participate in your narrative. He's going to participate in his own narrative. And so, you know, I really like the way that you and I connected through this film. And in a way, it's about how Marshawn wants human relations to have a certain kind of integrity that he'll connect with you if it's a real conversation, but he's not going to participate in your sort of bogus conversation. And so in a way, the film is about that. I mean, there's this incredible Albert Camus quote, the French writer who said uh, something like, the only way to deal with an unjust society is to become so absolutely free that your very existence is an act of rebellion. And I think that's Marchand. I think I may have said that at the screening as well, that, you know, he's just, to me, he's trying to be true to himself. He's trying to be free. He's trying not to lie to you. He's trying to forge real connections. So in that way, he's a really admirable citizen, I think. Oh, I love it all so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, David. I super appreciate it. Not only making the film, but also I appreciate you taking the time to not only have this conversation, but just all the insight and wisdom and just stories that you gave us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Tiffany. Lovely speaking with you. And I hope maybe I'll see you in Oakland. Oh, great. You'll be there. Fantastic. Yes. No, I'm super, super excited. I cannot wait. And thank you so much for checking out this episode. If you enjoyed it, make sure to hit that follow or subscribe button on whatever you're listening on so you can be connected for more episodes of DocuPod. And as I mentioned, all the links are going to be in the show description, including the link to get tickets to see the film in Oakland on Wednesday, August 7th at the New Parkway. Come see the film. I want you to see it. I want to meet you there. It's going to be incredible. Goodness. And as always, you can reach out to me. I'm on Twitter at Special Says and on Instagram, it's at Special says as well.